welcome back to Mid Wretched, my dear friends. Hello, friends. How are you? You're not going to answer that because, well, maybe you will answer it. I feel like I always do that if somebody asks me from a disembodied voice how I'm doing. I do answer. So, you know, know that like wherever you are in space, there's a part of me that wants to know your answer. And that is giving you an answer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That is like the most me thing I think I've ever said. <laughs> Probably. Do you really answer them, like least. just like just radio voices? Yeah. Do you not like like okay when you're like driving somewhere and you're on Google Maps and Siri says welcome to Illinois? Do you say thank you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do say See, thank it's you. It's the same logic. Yeah. Yeah. I talk shit to Alexa all the time, but. Yeah. She's a bitch. She doesn't fucking listen to me. It's true. So. No, like if somebody on a show says like, hey, how y'all doing out there? I'll be like, yeah, I'm fine. How are you? You know? Oh. Yeah, don't do that. I'm an extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask, I will answer and I will overshare. <laughs> oh, if you ask, I will pretend that I didn't hear you and avert eye contact. Yes. There are two types of people in this world. Mm. Anyway, friends, we hope that you're doing well out there. We hope that you are staying warm and toasty in this chilly January that is wrapping itself around the Midwest right now. Yeah. Yeah. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, what is this? Oh, this is another local brewery. Mm-hmm. What is it? Uh, Buckle Down? I think it's Buckle Down. It's out in Lyons. And this mm. is the... Uh, I think it's crackle and pop. It's like a brown ale with like chocolate and cinnamon. No, that sounds lovely. It is delicious. Hmm. How about yourself? Wine from a coffee mug. Ah, the classy way to drink it. Mm-hmm. Yes, the only way really. We've been using like really nice wine glasses. We've been like real wine moms in my house lately. Like me and my husband. <laughs> like We've been doing this thing where we like share a bottle of wine and watch like um, – christian movies and <laughs> yell at the tv for a couple hours and it's been like really delightful so oh, that's nice we're in kind of a we're in a, a wine kick right now so this is the leftovers from last night's viewing of god's not dead for oh there's four of them mm, there's gonna be a fifth can't wait wow so we're watching oak island the curse of oak island i love this for you i really do <laughs> it's literally really just do. like Old rich men digging in a hole for literally like 10 seasons. Mm. And they occasionally have somebody on that will draw like, they literally drew a menorah on a map to connect random points (laughs) to show that there's this connection between the Knights Templar that proves that there's gold on this island. That is so... (laughs) When they brought out the the menorah map, I died. (laughs) Yeah, that is really absurd, and I kind of want to watch it now. <laughs> well, maybe we'll use that to segue in. So, I bet I could draw a menorah to connect points on a murder map for you. Probably. I mean, it wouldn't mean probably. much, but if I was had a conspiracy deep enough, I could make it mean something. I mean, you you can always find a conspiracy deep Fuck enough. I yes. think. Yes. Yeah, you've been doing that. You've been at this for a long time. Ah, you've been at this for a long since time. Since I could walk. And we will get a little bit conspiratorial in this case. So Okay, killer. That's our, maybe that's our segue. Maybe you can kind of help me. Yeah, maybe you can kind of help me with um, 
I'm going to end up with like five theories for what happened here. And we can kind of reason through those. Okay. And I will find a way to blame lizard people. Yeah, let's go. Let's do this. Okay, let's do it. So what I think is interesting to me about this case right off the bat is that I'm going to be taking us to Carroll County, Indiana, but I'm not talking about Delphi. Ooh. Yes, obviously there's going to be some mentions because there are some parallels. But what I hope to kind of bring about with this is I've really been thinking about this question. What is going on in Carroll County, Indiana? Mm -hmm. And what I think a lot of this boils down to is a lot of the same players at the table for these two really important, really tragic investigations. And the fact that we have so many shared players makes me wonder... Um, about kind of the investigative strategies and techniques in both of these cases. So are we already putting on the table like incompetence versus malfeasance? That will be on the table and that'll be in the um, in the vicinity of the table, I would say. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, we will. And I, I'll be very curious for your take on some of this stuff. So um, yeah, so we are going to be in uh, Carroll County, Indiana, Specifically, we'll be in the town of Flora. So most people, if you are listening to true crime, if you are involved in true crime at all, you are familiar with the case in Delphi of Liberty German and Abigail Williams um, being murdered at the Monon High Bridge Trail in Delphi. What many of us don't hear about as much is the quadruple homicide via arson of four little girls eight miles away in the even sleepier town of Flora. The case in Flora happened only just a little over two months before the double murder in Delphi. That's insane, because I don't remember hearing about this at all. Yeah, we're going to talk about why you didn't hear about it. There are very specific reasons that you didn't hear about it. Okay, I am shocked because I just brought this up on Google Maps. They are literally right next to each other. It's eight miles. It's eight miles. It's... Like two roads. easy, like one road country drive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's nothing. Wow. Yeah. So really, we've got two essential questions today. What happened in Flora and what is going on in Carroll County? All right. So uh, Carroll County, Indiana is a very small rural county, actually. Population is only a little over 20,000. Delphi is its county seat. So really, like Carroll County is like... It's north central Indiana countryside. It is uh, Delphi is its biggest city and Delphi is still a small town. So it's just like straight line highways, blink and you miss them, kind of quaint, cute little towns. It's very conservative, very quiet, kind of like the quote unquote quintessential, like a nice place to raise a family um, sort of places. And Flora itself is very much an example of one of those like blink and you miss it towns. Mm-hmm. It's cute. There are tree-lined streets and historic homes, like one main road, and you're out of there. Like, that's it. Really. Yeah, there is nothing here. Wow, okay. Mm-mm. There's nothing, nothing. However, if you move your um, Google Street View around for just like a couple of minutes, you're going to find the house I'm talking about today, actually. It's still still standing, and the current Google Street View images of it are after the fire. Okay, because um, you know I already have my little guy down walking around. I know you do. <laughs> I hear him. I hear you clicking him around. <laughs> I have a very loud mouse, guys. <laughs> you do. It's a very intense clicker. Anyway, go ahead. So we're in Flora. Galen Rose moved to Flora from Missouri uh, a little while after her dad did. Galen's dad's name is Tracy Rose. 
and he had had some hard times in his past. They were um, estranged from each other for a long time because he was jailed for drug-related charges when Galen was just 12 years old. After his release, he really tried hard to make a better life. He got sober and he got a job through a family friend that connected him to Flora, Indiana. Otherwise, it's not really a place that you like move to. Like Flora, Indiana, in many ways, is made up of like the same like six prominent families that just kind of keep repopulating the town over and over (laughs) again, pretty much. But Tracy moved there, and when Galen felt ready to have her dad back in her life again, she moved there as well with her four children. In 2016, when the case takes place, uh, her children were Kiana, who was 11, Kiara, who was 9, Cariel, who was 7, and Kiani, who was 5. And they all moved from Missouri to Florida, pretty much to be closer to their grandpa, who you know had kind of gotten his life right and was really committed to being a good grandpa. They called him a papa. And uh, they just kind of wanted to be in proximity after a long time of not being in each other's lives. So, you know, the mother, Galen, and her daughters, like, settled pretty happily into Smallton, Indiana life pretty quickly from what it seemed like, too. All four of the girls were pretty athletic and enthusiastic, and they all became involved in the local cheerleading scene. So they would go on, like, cheerleading events and um, competitions pretty much every weekend. They were a very busy family. The girls also did really well in the local schools. Galen was working. It was a pretty, pretty chill life. They hung out with Tracy, Papa, um, as much as they could. He came to a lot of their events, especially their cheerleading and basketball games. And it seemed like they mostly were just kind of getting along just fine, like having a really lovely small town cheerleading filled like busy little life and Galen seemed to be just really happy to be like a busy mom of four like she had a lot on her plate she's a single mom to kind of doing everything doing it all filling every role but she really seems like before the fire she was a very happy happy busy mom with four happy busy kids (laughs) that is a full life Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So like, I'm glad that she, you know, moved closer to her dad. Because when you have four kids, you are busy and you need assistance sometimes. And it seemed like he was really able to kind of offer, you know, offer a lot of support and offer like another like kind of good, you know, adult in the kids lives and, you know, just to be there in that space. And, and Flora is like, it's a charming little town. Be a nice place to be a little kid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I imagine you'll get to this, but was their dad in their life at all? Or? No, they're, um, I believe all four of them had a different dads. They all have different last names, and none of the fathers were, like, particularly involved. I'd imagine there was, like, some variation of visitation, yeah. kind of depending on the kid, but um, yeah. not a lot of involvement. Sure. Yeah. Galen was from Missouri originally, and I think all but one of the girls was born in Missouri. I think one of them was born, not in Indiana, but another kind of adjoining Another state. Western state. Mm-hmm. It might have been Tennessee, actually, but I'm not sure. So don't quote me on it. Okay, so everything, you know, is this busy, like, tornado of activity that led us up to the weekend of November 19th, 2016. And it was the typical busy weekend. That weekend, Tracy was not in town. Um, he had to go on a trip to Tennessee for the weekend, um, I, I assume, for work. He said that he... He recollected later that he, for some reason, just didn't want to go. 
And uh, he remembered the little girls asking him, like, do you have to go? Oh, come on, Papa, don't go. Uh, That kind of stuff. And uh, he didn't want to, but he had to. So he went. The Saturday that weekend was just cheerleading events all day. And then the Sunday, they had a basketball tournament for Kiana, the oldest girl who was 11, uh, that she was playing in. And I love this detail that like Tracy was so invested and involved in what was going on that uh, Galen had her dad on the phone just giving him like a full play by play of the game <laughs> like while it was going on. Like I love That's that. Adorable. Yeah, I love that. I just like the support that Galen had for her kids. Like it just really kind of grabbed my heart. Like it would be really easy to be a mom of four and like minimize the activities your kids are involved in because it's a lot and it's stressful and it's time consuming. But she didn't seem to like these kids had these passions and she was like, okay, like that's what we're going to do then, you know? Yep. And I just really admire that. So, you know, they got through the basketball tournament and they came home and they went to bed in their duplex on Columbia and Division Streets in Flora. It's a Columbia Street address, but it's a house on the corner. Uh, the house is a large, old home. Uh, it's a duplex. So Galen and her girls lived on the ground floor, the bottom floor, and then another small family lived on the second story. At about 4 a.m. on November 21st, which would be the wee-wee hours of that Monday morning, Emergency responders arrived at a house fire at the duplex. Mm -hmm. Adam Ayers, a neighbor, was the first person there to try to help Galen. He actually heard her screaming outside, and he ran out to try to help. His wife, Elizabeth, made the 911 call initially, but she did not make that 911 call until after calling the owner of the building itself. Okay. Her brother-in-law, Josh Ayers. Uh, Okay. Yeah, so Adam and Elizabeth are the couple that live next door, and then Josh's brother actually owns that building. The Ayers kids grew up in the house, actually. So Fire Chief Adam Randall and Florida Police Officer Josh Dissinger were the first, um, like, first responders on on the scene, and they found the same thing that Adam Ayers found, Galen crying and yelling outside of the home the home in flames. Galen herself severely injured from her attempts to get her girls out of the house. Carroll County Sheriff's Deputy Drew Yoder was another one of the first one on the scene, and he actually tried to breach the house many, many, many times to get in and get the girls out. Um, when he first got there, he didn't even put on like the, the PPE you're supposed to have on, the, um, the suit. He just kind of tried to get in there. Wow. Yeah, and he tried and tried and tried multiple times to get in the home and extract the girls. Eventually, he actually, um, there's kind of two different stories. One was that he lost consciousness and passed out and that Josh Dissinger had to drag him out of the property. Not out of the property, but like kind of off the back porch. Others just that like he was still conscious, but Dissinger had to pull him out. Either way, he had to be extracted himself from the house. out under his own power. Mm-mm, definitely not. The only other person in the house at the time was the woman who lived upstairs. The rest of her family was not there. They were out of town that day. So she came out. She was able to make it out safely. So it was a duplex. It was a top-bottom duplex, right? Yeah. So there's a family on the upper level. Uh, that that woman got out safely. Okay. Yeah. Kiana, Kiara, Cariel, and Kiani were stuck inside. Oh, jeez. Yeah. 
after a little while of trying to breach the building, neighbors and others gathered around and looked on while firefighters carried out the four bodies of little girls a little while later. Galen and uh, Drew Yoder would actually be airlifted for treatment. Wow. Yeah, for their injuries, which was mostly smoke inhalation. Galen wasn't hospitalized for too long, but Yoder actually had critical injuries and was on a ventilator for several days before he could be released. Oh, wow. Yeah, this was a really, really intense fire. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, the house, like, if you look at the house, I mean, it really is, like, kind of the classic, like, craftsman-style old house you see in the Midwest. And a lot of these are split into these, like, top-bottom duplexes. Mm-hmm. But basically, like, from what I could tell, there was an external small staircase, like a fire escape that the upstairs neighbor was able to get out of. Okay, so, like, our listeners, this means nothing to our listeners, but, like, the house that I lived in in Oak Park? Very like that. Mm-hmm. Very like that. It was a single-family home, but it was gigantic mm-hmm. and broken up into multiple different apartment units. Because, yeah, yeah, mine had similar. that, like, outside staircase that had just been encased, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's how this was, too. Um, a little bit not as nice as your house in Oak Park, like um, – uh, I think probably older okay, yeah. than that, but this the same kind of setup, yeah. If you were ever at my first duplex in South Bend, yeah. the really big gross green one, um, it was set up very much the same way. Okay, okay. But yeah, I mean, obviously houses like this are kind of a dime a dozen in the Midwest, oh, yeah. right? Like these very big old school, this would have been like a family of 12 would have lived here comfortably, big old houses. Mm-hmm. And people buy them and they turn them into duplexes or threeplexes and make a ton of money that way, right? Oh, yeah, because they're really easy to rent out. And they are they are nice houses. They are. I mean, they're historic. They're going to have lots of good built-in storage and, yeah, yeah. a lot of charm. But uh, being old yeah. houses, they're not always the most safe. Mm-hmm. No. And honestly, since I started researching this case, I've been thinking a lot about my own house and like what we would do in the case of like many different kinds of emergencies. And I've been compelled to think about it harder than I have in the past, you know. Harder than is comfortable. Yeah, a little bit, honestly. It doesn't help that a friend of mine was texting me the other day like, do you guys have a will yet? And I'm like, no. (laughs) Uh. So is this house that I'm looking at on Google Maps that's been boarded up, is this the house? It's yellow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Still has their toys on the front porch. You see that? Yeah, I see a couple of them. Oof. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is. That's oh god. On the other side. Mm-hmm. On the other side, there's a guy just mowing his lawn, and it hurts me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna talk for a second about their autopsy reports. I read all four reports. They're really hard to read. So I'm going to spare a lot of the super grisly details and just kind of give the the broad strokes. All four girls had some amount of full thickness burns, which is kind of the uh, medical term for what we would colloquially call a third degree burn, over much of their bodies uh, to varying degrees. But all of their deaths were found to be uh, asphyxia due to inhalation of soot and carbon monoxide poisoning. One thing I thought was kind of interesting from the medical examination was that the amount of CO2 that they had in their systems would not on its own be fatal, Mm -hmm. but it would make you feel sick, probably disoriented, 
potential for syncope, especially if you might have like a predisposition towards passing out. So, you know, I kind of wonder if that made it a little bit harder to get them out too, if, you know, if they weren't able to, to move around quite as easily as they would have if they didn't have that amount of CO2 in their system. Especially thinking not only like the CO2, but that added on to the confusion, the fear, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the, the broad strokes, the important part of the autopsy reports. Everything else about their bodies was normal, healthy, no other signs of like any kind of foul play or injury. All four girls were healthy, well cared for, in good health at the time of their deaths. Once the fire was finally subdued, the next day investigators and canines came in to, um, specifically to, they brought the dogs in to sniff for accelerants so that investigators could try to begin to figure out a source and cause of the fire. I thought this was kind of interesting. So the Indiana Department of Homeland Security actually houses the Indiana State like fire marshal. Okay. Um, so IHS oversees the United State Fire Marshal. That guy's name is Jim Gleason. He initially kind of led the investigation of the home itself. Mm-hmm. And in the course of that initial investigation, they determined that the fire had been likely the result of faulty wiring behind the fridge yeah. in the downstairs unit of the home. So Galen Rose's unit of the yeah. home. And at that point, the canines did not hit on any possible accelerants. Although one investigator on the scene would claim to observe um, like fire tracks in the um, kind of in the debris that would indicate a a line of fire, like a literal line. But that could occur also just naturally. So um, it wasn't necessarily used to. It wasn't like full performance Mm -hmm. of anything. No, definitely not. Yeah. So the fire was ruled to be an accident, which kind of gave the town sort of free run to just kind of get swept up in kind of an impossible degree of grief, like an accident of this magnitude that takes the lives of four little girls is the kind of thing that levels a small town, changes its landscape forever. This is a house that's right in the center of town. Mm -hmm. It's right next to the downtown strip. So you are seeing this house every single day Mm -hmm. if you are driving through town. Uh, it's inescapable. It is literally right off the main street that goes through the middle of town. Like it is mm-hmm. visible from just driving down the road. Yeah, it is. You cannot escape this house at all. So, and it just seems like it really has kind of become a big part of kind of how this town operates. Its consciousness um, has been, in many ways, kind of wrapped up in grieving this situation. Mm-hmm. There were neighbors that, um, if you kind of look at like old news clips from this and things like that, neighbors that were interviewed about it, like that can't even get through talking about it on on air. Oh, jeez, that's without rough. crying or yeah. So this really struck a lot of people, kind of right in the heart in town. Um, it wasn't immediately after, but eventually the weight of the tragedy would be so heavy for Galen that she had to leave Indiana. Yeah. And she actually moved to California to be near other family just because it was too hard to be there anymore. I can't imagine, especially, again, like it's such a small town. There's no escaping this house. Mm-mm. No, there's really not. Sheriff Tobe Lesenby, who you'll recognize his name if you are um, in any way a <laughs> uh, Delphi aficionado, was quoted to say, and I think that what he says here really captures kind of what I think the vibe of the town was afterward. The attitude of disgust, frustration, anger, sadness, 
a lot of those come to mind. I think that's how it was for people. It's how it was for the family, how it was for their neighbors, anyone that knew them. It's just kind of, it seemed like it kind of became like a a blanket of grief that washed over the town for a time. Mm-hmm. Now, two months later, the tenor of the whole situation would change. And this is where things start <laughs> to get a little bit fishy. Uh, Indiana Department of Homeland Security, like I said, kind of oversees fire investigations. I did not know that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I would ever guess that. That's still weird. No, me neither. So they've got this dude, uh, their lead fire investigator is this guy, Dennis Randall. Mm-hmm. He developed an official press release announcing to the public a new development in the Flora story, that this was now being ruled an intentional fire. Hmm. So an arson, an act of arson. This was immediately out of pocket because the DHS was not considered to be the authorities overseeing the case in the first place. So they were supposed to only be overseeing the investigation of like the fire. Of the fire itself. Right. But they were not intended to be like the mouthpiece or um, to have anything to do with like a criminal investigation or anything like that. So for him to be the one to write up a press release and then send it out was um, very disturbing for other authorities involved. Any investigator writing a press release is weird. Usually those go through very specific media departments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's this guy, Dennis Randall. Um, he's going to come back in a very interesting way later as well. So this is where I want to talk about, like, why, why did you not hear much about Flora? Yeah. First off, it was not originally ruled to be an arson when it first happened. So... Like, I'm local enough to this that when it happened, Flora was all over my social media and all over my local news cycle as a, a tragic accident. Yeah. Um, after a couple of days of those types of articles, you didn't see much about Flora again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for an accidental fire, even with four fatalities, you wouldn't necessarily see that in media outside of this area, I would not think. No. And again, like, it's very believable as an accidental fire when, like, these are old houses, you know, it's Mm -hmm. very likely electrical wasn't insulated properly or there was a repair that wasn't done properly. Nobody would really Mm -hmm. question that, to be honest. No, exactly. I mean, I was really struck by this house because it looks exactly like the first house we tried to buy in this town. And the reason that we didn't end up buying it was because it still had the original knob and tube wiring. Oh, no good. Which no is bueno. really cool. But no bueno. But dangerous. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so I would not be surprised. This house looked about the same age if it still had some knob and tube, if not all knob and tube mm-hmm. down there. So um, that was kind of one thing that was like, oh, man, like this looks so much like that house. Probably the exact same decade it sprung up would be my guess. Now, the other reason you didn't hear about this is incredibly frustrating. This press release was buried into just about the sleepiest news cycle you can possibly release a press release into, which was a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. A staffer of uh, Randall's sent a very desperate sounding email to Randall saying, hey, let's release this on Monday so that we get better coverage for it. And Randall's like, yeah, nah, and sends it out um, on Saturday afternoon. Why is Randall making all these calls? Good question. So because Randall's just going rogue out here, he sends out the press release on the evening of January 28th, which is a Saturday. And it is notable that several weeks prior to the press release, there's like plenty of time for this to be clear as a bell to somebody like Dennis Randall. 
Carroll County prosecutor at that time, Rob Ives, who has since resigned, had asked specifically that the Indiana State Police take over the case. Mm-hmm. So the prosecutor of the county like specifically asked for this to be funneled in a very different direction. But Dennis Randall is out here still like going ham on his keyboard, sending out this press release. Why do I hate Dennis Randall so much? Because you should. So <laughs> I'm like, is he trying to like sneak something out and like be some kind of whistleblower? But it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like it. So what's interesting to me here also is that there's a lot of people here. It's going to start to feel like a web that it's going to make you feel very quickly that there is some very um, shady things going on because of these interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. So there was also an independent arson investigator working the case. I think that this person was hired by the ISP, the Indiana State Police. I'm not 100%, but I'm like 85% sure. Okay, that was literally my question is who hired the independent investigator. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it was the ISP. He uh, sent a very scathing email to the Department of Homeland Security and its fire marshal, Jim Greeson, who would have been Dennis Randall's boss, Mm -hmm. basically. And in that email... He is very clear that they shouldn't have been involved in the first place, basically, that he was out of control for sending that email, and that nobody else was looped in at all, including the people that are at the highest levels of law enforcement in that area and in the state, really. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, not even to Bob Ives, who's the county prosecutor like he heard about it when everybody else did Mm -hmm. and that would be probably the biggest boo-boo of them all is to not run that at least past the county prosecutor first jesus christ right Mm -hmm. you're accusing someone even if you haven't named him yet somebody of killing four girls yeah so nobody was even looped into the determination made by that office that by randall's office that it was an intentional fire um, before that press release, conceivably. Okay, fully um, rogue. All right. Yeah, pretty rogue. But here's a fun fact for you. Dennis Randall's son, Adam Randall, was the fire chief in Flora at the time of the fire. Okay. Yeah. So not long after this, Dennis Randall was asked to be removed from the case, and obviously was. Mm-hmm. So, and then Carroll County Prosecutor, like I said, Bob Ives, uh, came out with this statement. He says, the state fire marshal considers, I believe, part of its task to look into the criminal aspect of the case. But as far as I'm concerned, the lead investigative agency on this case is the Indiana State Police. Mm-hmm. So he's very clear there, like, who's, who is supposed to be handling yeah, this. Like, you can investigate this, and then you hand off the data that you get to us. Mm-hmm. And my understanding about fire investigations is they're much more of a craft than they are a science. They really are, yeah. So luckily that that private investigator, or that um, independent arson investigator, came to the same conclusion eventually that it was an arson. So, you know, with the cause being changed from accidental to arson did not mean that there were necessarily any real leads, though. And that's where it's also frustrating. Like, typically, you know, you think, like, when you see a press release kind of come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. that it's because, like here's a big lead that happened that we can kind of tell the public about and, and hopefully get some help on this, right? I'm surprised that they, well, I mean, again, he kind of went rogue in doing this, but I'm surprised that they wouldn't mm-hmm. say that this is an arson when they didn't have any other leads to go on. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, obviously, like, that could scare away your perp or whatever, or any suspects. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, one thing that they did um, 
well, I'm going to talk about what was like what was else in the kind of the content of the press release. But um, one of the big things that changed the determination was that on a secondary investigation, there were accelerants found in the home. Okay. Okay. So there was good reason to to change the determination from the initial findings, but this was not done in any way, shape, or form, like through any kind of protocol or appropriate flowchart. This this announcement mm-hmm. at all. So Homeland Security, the Florida Fire Department, and the ISP kind of together and separately just kind of plea with the public to come forward with any information that they had. You'll see if you look into kind of um, videos and news reports that the public face for this case in many ways was the assistant fire chief, Todd Trent. Um, He spoke to the news a lot, especially about the impact that this fire had on the community and kind of his like sincere hope that people would come forward. He had a very just kind of a presence. I could see why they used him for the news. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very compelling person, someone that you'd want to respond to, I think. It kind of looks um, authoritative. Yeah. And I also get the sense, like I said, that there's like, this is a very, very, very small town. We're talking about 1,800 people. Yeah. And like some of the kind of prominent people in the community are people that are well known, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of almost like local celebrities, kind of. Mm. So... The press release kind of brings about more information about the status of the house and the duplex. And a lot of it was pretty damning and pretty troubling. For one thing, several areas of the ground floor of the home were found to have accelerants in place. What those accelerants were has been withheld from the public. I think probably for good investigative reasons. It was also found that there were no batteries in a smoke alarm on the second floor. The smoke alarm in the upstairs hallway was exposed to extreme heat melted and scorched there was one working fire alarm or smoke alarm in the upstairs Mm -hmm. so one not working one working but there were not working smoke alarms in the apartment occupied by galen and her girls okay and this is a rental property listen i'm a bad renter and we would regularly take our smoke alarms down because they were overly sensitive Mm, really and every time we cooked they would go off Mm. that and like not having batteries in them and things like that it's common although it is incredibly unsafe and illegal that's fair i'm the opposite i mean when we moved into our first old house we went to home depot and (laughs) bought every like state-of-the-art smoke detector and carbon monoxide detector that we could find and i mean that house was like a 900 square foot house and we probably had four Smoke detectors and four CO2 detectors. Like, I literally right now could not tell you where my smoke detectors are. Really? Could not tell you. Wow. Maybe I'm not staying at your house this week. (laughs) (laughs) I'll find them by the time you get here. (laughs) I promise. Kidding. But, I mean, like, we, we painted this week. And we had to unplug one of our CO2 detectors. And I was very uncomfy about it being unplugged for two days. So... So, um, you know, this press release happened, and it happened um, not too long before Delphi happened. Eight miles away in Delphi, like we said, Abigail Williams and Liberty German are murdered at the Modon High Bridge Trail, and that occurs on February 15th. So um, we're very, or 13th. So very close proximity, just really a matter of a couple of months here. Mm -hmm. So... Comparing the responses by the same law enforcement agencies is enough to make your stomach churn. Mm -hmm. 
we all know the coverage that Delphi has gotten. Jesus, do um, Yeah. Compared to the coverage that Florida has gotten, sharing so many of the same players, you've got Doug Carter involved in both cases. Mm-hmm. You've got Toe Blesenby involved in both cases. Officers from surrounding jurisdictions, I assume one of them would be Delphi, were on the scene of that fire that night. A lot of shared resources, Bob Ives, many of the same people, two very, very different cases in the public eye. Yeah, and they're both small enough towns that you would definitely need like the county police or the higher level authorities to be investigating mm-hmm. in in both of these cases because these cases are huge. Yeah, they're huge cases in very small towns. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the town I live in has about the same population as Flora, and we've got, I think, three police cars in town. So you're not talking about a big staff here. Mm-hmm. So you do, anytime something happens, it's going to be the county sheriff's office. The Indiana State Police will be involved, that kind of stuff right away, because there's just not the kind of manpower to deal with anything more than like fender benders and throwing guys out of the bar into the drunk tank for the night. The daily know? things that typically are what happen in a small town. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, with the Flora fire, like I said, when the determination was made that it was arson, that press release was buried in the Saturday afternoon news cycle. There was never really this like united, like we're going to get this guy message to the public or to the media um, until people started to point out the difference. Mm-hmm. And the public would point out the difference and law enforcement would follow. Right. Mm -hmm. So when people started to point out the differences between the response to Flora and the response to Delphi. Yeah, like, hey, what are you doing, um, guys? We have this still. That's when Doug Carter kind of shows up to do his Doug Carter thing. So um, was Doug Carter the one that made the that very infamous statement now on the Delphi case? Like, we will find you. You might be in this room right now. Right now. Mm hmm. Okay, so that was, I just wanted to make sure that my memory was correct. That was Doug Carter. Yeah, so Doug Carter is a superintendent of the Indiana State Police. He is somebody that has become very much so the face of the Delphi case, certainly. He's got a little um, flair for the dramatic. He, I, I, I don't know where I saw it or heard it or read it, but somebody, um, it might have been the Down the Hill podcast, talked about how he sounds like a preacher. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And he very much does. Like, he's got this very um, overwrought manner of speaking. I I am very critical of Doug Carter, so I'm trying to find, like, a diplomatic way of saying this. But he does a really good job turning on the emotions and turning them off. He plays to an Indian audience exactly the way Mm -hmm. that he intends to. Yeah. I I think it's authentically him. I think it's authentically him. Yeah, I think it's an act, but I think it's his authentic act, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the interesting differences to me, though, between how Doug Carter has handled Delphi and how he has handled Flora, and he has been significantly less vocal in Flora than he has been in Delphi. Um, He would come out to say, like, especially after this criticism, he says, "Um, I don't think anything has ever bothered me more than what's occurred in Carroll County, Indiana, in my entire lifetime. Mm. That's my impression of Doug Carter. It's terrible. You got to get a little like a, you know, how Indiana sometimes has that southern twang. I tried to get there at the end. Yeah. 
That's not him, though. It's it's more like um, it really does. It sounds like you're in, in church when he talks, yeah. honestly. Yeah. But he, you know, when it came to the Delphi press releases, it was very much like, we're going to get this guy. You killed these little girls. He uses that rhetoric over and over and over again. Little girls, little girls. He speaks on behalf of the families. He he really tugs at the heartstrings. When it came, yeah, he gets teary eyed oh. almost, like just short mm-hmm. of teary eyed when he talks about the Delphi case. Which, again, to an extent, I understand, but mm-hmm. I get the feeling you're going to tell me very different about Laura. Yes. So uh, he almost right away. This was kind of about a year after the initial the fire itself at one point would say to a local news station that Galen had not been cooperative with the investigation, mm-hmm. um, that she had not been forthcoming as far as who had access to the home in the days and weeks leading up to the fire. Um, and I think it's absolutely absurd to insinuate that when she had been to the best of her ability by all other accounts. Mm-hmm. Her family, so Galen herself has stayed very much out of the media. This is obviously incredibly painful for her, like beyond painful. Her whole life got taken away in one night. Mm -hmm. So she has not been super public. She has not, you know, Mm -hmm. made a lot of speeches. She, you know, makes a statement on the anniversaries, but um, she's not not the one that's going to live in the media. But her relatives, she has a couple of relatives that are. And they have responded very publicly and to very much challenge that by saying not only did Galen answer every question the police had, but so did all the rest of us who don't even freaking live there, <laughs> right? So the family and Doug Carter are saying two different things. But I thought it was very jarring to me that he would make that statement about a family member mm-hmm. um, kind of publicly to the media when he hasn't really said anything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when he does express condolences about Flora, it's often only in relation to Delphi as well. Like, everything that's happened in Carroll County has been terrible, basically. So he got me all kinds of riled up today. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. It's just, I wonder what's going on in his head when he thinks so differently about these two cases. Like, obviously, they're incredibly different cases and with incredibly different situations. Mm-hmm. But both of them involved the loss of multiple children. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know I want to give some grace to the fact that, like, initially it wasn't a- ruled an accident. Mm-hmm. So initially, like, he didn't have to be there initially, right? Mm-hmm. Like, from what the, what it looked like at first, you would not need the Indiana State Police to be there, yeah. right? So that knee-jerk, like, relationship to it that he has with Delphi is very different, right? Like he was at Delphi the day the girls were found. Like mm-hmm. um, I imagine there's a very different personal connection to it. Yeah. But I think his skepticism towards Galen to me really colors the statements that he makes. Yeah. And I think it's tough because in Delphi, you know, you've got two, the two girls both have their own families. There's plenty of people that, kind of can be figureheads for a time or two that can make statements Mm -hmm. that, you know. And as far as Flora goes, it was just Galen and her dad. And they were both pretty kind of quiet people, you know. So there's not that depth in the bench that they had in Delphi, right? They're also transplants. They're not local. They're not, like, from the area, you know. So there's that difference as well. I think we can't 
you know, you got to say the quiet part out loud as well. There is a racial difference here. I'm not sure if it, you know, I don't want to make an insinuation about Doug Carter and race here, but I think in some of the other ways that this hasn't gotten a lot of attention, certainly that's a a card I think here. There are unconscious biases with reporting Mm -hmm. and investigating and all of that stuff. We know that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would be inappropriate to not mention that and to not bring it up. Yeah. And I I will kind of bring that up a little bit later as well as far as kind of what this has looked like kind of in some aftermath. So, you know, at around the one year anniversary, a couple of important things happen. One thing that I think is really touching about this case is that when they held the first anniversary vigil for Galen's daughters, attendance was scant. It was reported to be a few dozen people. But the families of Libby and Abby were there. Mm-hmm. And these families, uh, to the best of their ability, have been supportive of each other's cases. Good. Good. And I just, even saying that just now, I got goosebumps. Like, that just, I don't know, I think that says a lot. That does warm my heart a little bit, that they're at least supporting yeah. each other. Yeah. Um, at that one-year anniversary, Kim Riley, who's the Indiana State Police Sergeant, you know, obviously under Doug Carter, shared that they still have quote, two or three officers assigned to the case, and they are investigating it alongside county authorities as a, quote, possible arson. Mm -hmm. So that is obviously way less committal than the news that came out in January that it was a definite arson. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important to point out two or three officers. So he's not sure if it's two or three. It's also not a lot of officers. No. By this time, a year later, family and friends had raised about a $12,000 reward fund. Mm -hmm. And Doug Carter again came out to talk about the importance of tipsters in solving both cases. So he would talk about Delphi and Flora kind of together and talk about how, like, uh, he was asked, you know, how important is it for locals to, you know, call and give you tips for what they might think are random or insignificant things? And he's like, it's very, very, very important. At this point, there's also a little low-key detail that's kind of slipped in. Okay. Not not, uh, dwelt on. That a person of interest had been allegedly identified by the ISP, but not released to the public. Oh, when did that slip out? Yeah, it just kind of slipped in around that one-year anniversary, like, media flurry. Just like, hey, nobody pay attention, but we got to – we have a person of interest. That's Mm -hmm. all we're going to say. That's Yep. Now, despite that, no arrest has ever been made in this case. Okay. Yes. So those are the facts of the case in that first year. And there's not been a lot of movement since then. So I want to kind of talk about the kind of like the the backdrop that complicates it. And some more of these people are going to kind of come back into play. Do we have much like knowledge of the evidence or what was at the scene? Did they find anything? Not really. So the only thing that we know was found was evidence of accelerants in the home. Okay. What I thought was interesting was that they did not, at that point, take out of the equation the wiring behind the fridge. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that was an oversight or if there was, you know, intentional fire set that was then exacerbated by faulty wiring behind the fridge mm-hmm. or if it meant that maybe the wiring behind the fridge was intentionally messed with and accelerants used to, you know, kind of keep the blaze going. Mm-hmm. It is not clear whether or not authorities believe the fire to be set from the inside or from the outside of the home. Okay. Okay. 
Logically speaking, it's got to be set from the outside. But if the origin point is behind the fridge, that doesn't make any sense. So it can't be both. If that's the accurate origin point. But mm-hmm. now I'm kind of suspicious of like everything that's been released to the public. And mm-hmm. with these old duplexes, they're not the most secure houses in the world. No, certainly not. Certainly not. They've got old doors, like, old locks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if this was set up the same way, but when I lived in a house, it looked a lot like this. Like the setup for the duplex, I was on the top. Mm-hmm. And there was like a big apartment on the bottom and then two studios on the top. I had one um, and this other guy had the other one. And you would walk through the front door. The front door was very rickety. There was like one lock. Somebody kicked through it very easily and broke in. They came to my apartment when they were in fact looking for my drug dealing neighbor. But they came to my apartment. I hid in the bathtub and screamed until they went away. And they did. Wow. Okay. That was a bad day. Um, But like a super rickety door. And then no further internal security. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like a, a small flight of stairs up to the second floor where my apartment was and where this other guy's apartment was. And then um, a small door off of that main hallway into the downstairs apartment. Mm-hmm. So um, you'd be talking about two just kind of regular keyed yeah. locks. We're not even talking about like a double deadbolt or anything like yeah, that. No. So, you know, I, I did wonder like, okay, like if the fire was intentionally set from the inside, would access to the apartment have been difficult Probably not. Would there have been evidence of some kind of a break-in? Not necessarily. No. Right? Not necessarily. Also, when you're living in a house like that, like, you are dependent on, like, those outside doors, the people remembering to lock them. hmm And I, I grew up with three sisters. A lot of kids in and out of the house. We were not the most mm-hmm. mindful of keeping the doors locked. Yeah. I think there's also, um, you know, especially if there are a lot of people kind of renting the house at like a high degree of turnover, a lot of these places don't change the locks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They really need to, but they don't always. So Legally, I think they're supposed to, but again, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean they do. Right. So could there be any number of keys to this house floating around? Mm-hmm. Very possible. So I spent a little bit of time kind of looking into like, is it possible that you could enter a home and get a fire going and for it to not go totally ham until three to four o'clock in the morning. Like they were at the basketball tournament all day. Is it possible that somebody got in there when they weren't there? It's not. Yeah, I was going to say that one sounds, yeah. No, fire spread very quickly. I just had to like, I had to entertain that, that idea, right? But from any evidence I found, any reading I did, it did not. That's not a possibility that that happened. Mm-hmm. So if it was set from the inside, somebody was in the apartment mm-hmm. in at between probably 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. The initial 911 call was about 3.34 a.m. So somebody had to have been in the home in the wee hours of the morning. Yeah. Or it was set from the outside. Mm-hmm. I do think, though, that investigators would be able to tell. Yeah, I feel like if it was set from the outside, that would be pretty obvious. You'd think. But that that particular fact, which I think is a very, very important fact, has not been established in any documentation about this case. Okay. So, I mean, to me, I think what's really frustrating is that, like, the most robust documents kind of about, like, the nuts and bolts of this case, what they found that night are the autopsy reports. Mm-hmm. So those are, you know, I think it was, like, a 60-page document, all four autopsy reports. 
but like you can't find anything about necessarily like the state of the home. I was going to say, did they find any evidence that like the girls had tried to get out? Um, I, it wouldn't have been stated directly. I think the location of where they were burned on each of their bodies does yeah. imply that to me. Um, there were a lot of burns on their feet and legs and their backsides. Mm-hmm. So I, I would take that to indicate walking into fire yeah. um, running away. or trying to walk away from it. Yeah. And again, like some were, some were more injured by burns than the others, but uh, they all, I believe, had in common burns on their feet. Yeah. So yeah, to me that, that implies motion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's also like it's not a very big space. Like the individual apartment, it's not that big of a mm-hmm. space. The house is big, but the individual apartment's not. So it would have gone up and been impossible to get through very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, again, some of the kind of the other like happenstance around the case and just see what you think about it. Mm-hmm. The residence, the duplex was 103 Columbia Street. It's, it was owned by an LLC called Birch Tree Holdings. Okay. This LLC is co-managed by Josh Ayers and Troy Helderman. Uh, the Ayers family is a very prominent local family. They have been business owners in Carroll County for over 100 years. Damn, um, okay. Yeah, they have owned the True Value, what are now the True Value hardware stores in both Flora and Delphi for since like 1916. Uh, the original store was 1916. The other one came later. Okay. But they're definitely one of these kind of local legacy families. Like I said before, Adam Ayers is the brother of Josh, and he lived next door at 105 Columbia Street mm-hmm. um, and was the first civilian on the scene. One thing that's interesting about his arrival on the scene was that he was there while the fire was being handled okay. by the authorities. Fire Chief Adam Randall suggested to Adam Ayers to break the windows in the home, which actually caused the fire to get significantly worse very, very quickly when those flames were exposed to open air. I was going to say, that's a bad, even I know that that's a bad idea because you're letting more fresh oxygen into a fire. Mm-hmm. So why then would an experienced fire chief direct a civilian to break windows open, knowing that it would likely stoke a fire? Why would an experienced fire chief direct a civilian to do anything? The fire chief is supposed to be yes. the one in control. Right. And there were many, many, many other people there uh, in an official capacity. So why is Adam Randall being engaged with at all? Or, um, sorry, Adam Ayers. Too many Adams. <laughs> so uh, Adam Randall... It's not necessarily stated officially that this is why, but he did resign as fire chief the next year. This is another local prominent family. And again, his dad was Dennis Randall, Mr. Rogue press release guy. Ooh. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Adam Randall would not only resign from his job, but he would actually leave the entire area altogether, despite being a highly decorated and respected member of the community up until then. Sus. Mm-hmm. So he just straight up left. Mm-hmm. Josh Ayers and Troy Helderman arrived at the scene uh, while firefighters were fighting the fire. Interestingly, this is not the first of their buildings to go up in a suspicious fire. Oh. In 2013, a storage facility owned by Birch Tree Holdings went up in a fire so devastating that a cause could not even be determined. Was anybody injured in that, in that one? There were not people in that okay. fire, no. There was a very significant amount of property lost in that fire, like... Um, work vehicles like forklifts and things like that 
They are not reaping insurance money from that fire. In fact, they're still paying, paying property taxes on that property. But that doesn't mean they didn't try. Okay. So that's going to get me to my theories. Mm-hmm. Any questions before I get further? I feel like I'm just like, go, go, going. No, 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 no. Keep going. I have thoughts. But... Okay. I'm excited for your thoughts. Mm-hmm. I have five theories. <laughs> on so little <laughs> information, you have five theories. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put on my little, like, Fox Mulder hat. Please do. Please do. So theory one is corruption gone wrong, obviously. Corruption gone even more wrong, I should say. Josh Harris and Troy Helderman were not exactly considered to be um, excellent landlords. In fact, they were called in many resources that I found slumlords. Hmm. They're not being any reliable fire detectors in the home, to my mind, communicates that, although I, I take your fire alarm story seriously as well. Um, uh, my fire alarm stories are my own shit. Mm-hmm. Like, if yeah. I choose to not replace the batteries or take them down because I'm cooking with a wok, that's one thing. It is on yeah. a landlord to make sure that they are there. Yes. I also think that it is unnerving, and we've we've had other cases where people handle 911 calls badly, mm-hmm. but to me, it is very unnerving that Elizabeth Ayers called her brother-in-law first mm-hmm. before calling 911. Yeah. Not only did she call Josh first, she sat on the phone for six minutes before she called 911. Six minutes is a long time. Yeah. And yeah. to call him and say, hey, your building's on fire. Knowing that a mother and four little girls live on the bottom story and another family lives on the top. Even as a landlord, you would be like, get off the phone and call the fucking police. Mm -hmm. Has anyone called yet? Yeah. Six minutes between those two phone calls. That's a long time. That's a suspiciously long time. I think so, too. Um, Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Although the the time between the calls is not alleged. That is on the record. I think it's also interesting that there was at least one of their fire connected to their properties in the area. Mm -hmm. I think it's a compelling possibility that there is something suspicious going on there. I also think it's interesting, food for thought, that in such a small town, there are going to be some very, very close relationships between local business owners, legacy families, and legacy law enforcement families. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Am I suggesting like a large scale corporate law enforcement corruption ring going on in Florida, Indiana? Mm. No. Am I suggesting even that Josh Ayers and Troy Helderman are deliberate murderers? No. What's interesting to me, though, is we've got another fire kind of on their watch as property owners. And we've got a day we're in that duplex, even though it is occupied by a lot of people both families were somewhat absent. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if they knew that. If perhaps the fire was intentionally set with the intention of insurance money or some other reason without the knowledge that there were people in the building. Because that family upstairs, only the mom was there. The other, her um, husband and kids were not there. Galen and the girls were at a basketball tournament all day. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that someone thought they wouldn't be there and that they were burning down an empty house? Yeah. Mm. 
What time was the 911 call finally made? It was made at, uh, I want to say 3.36. Let me make sure I'm right. So in the middle of the night? Yeah, 3.28 a.m. Josh Ayers is notified of the fire via phone call from Elizabeth Ayers stating your house is on fire. Call is placed prior to calling 911. 3.34 a.m. Dispatch. First 911 call connects. Uh, Elizabeth Ayers reports a fire at the house next door at 103 East Columbia. There are four kids inside and the neighbors outside. It's a two-story building. On the call, you can hear yelling and asking where the children are. You can hear yelling for light. You can hear sirens on the call. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to think that that a fire would start in the middle of the night like that, though. I don't know. I don't know. Because I'm imagining that they had a car or something that would indicate that they were present. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's fair. Um, You know what's interesting? I wonder... Let me look at the Google Maps real quick. Because I do know in some of these places, you're only going to have street parking. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I'm looking at these kids, and they're so freaking cute. Oh, my God. They are beautiful children. Yeah, I don't see a driveway. I see an alley. Okay. Um, But it doesn't look like I see much yard back there. So, like, we live in, a, you know, a big historic home in a mm-hmm. small town. Uh, we have an alley. And we have a large parking area behind our house, but a lot of houses don't. Mm-hmm. So I don't see a I don't necessarily see where you could be totally sure that people were there. Okay. Okay. Fair. Yeah. You could make a guess, obviously, on the street parking, but I don't see I can see the backyard a bit from Street View. I don't see a designated parking area. Yeah, it just seems so. really risky to get into a house at, in the middle of the night to start a fire. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's pretty unrealistic to me that the fire was set from the inside. And and no one would hear somebody coming in. I mean, I could be wrong. And it was the wee hours of the morning. Everyone could have been just like very sound asleep. After a really but, busy day, yeah. Yeah, but I do want to see, I want to see the definitive evidence of where the fire, or at least the theoretical evidence of where the fire actually started. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 most definitely. And that's not there. Theory two is um, that it was an accidental fire and just a shitty, shoddy investigation. Mm-hmm. This is what Tracy Rose, the girl's grandfather, believes to be the case. He does not believe the fire was intentionally set. Obviously, you know, um, he's not an investigator on the case. He's somebody with a personal, you know, vested interest and probably a hope that it wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. But certainly he has come out to say that. The timestamp on this is... Uh, not clear. It made its way to the internet six months ago, but a local person sent a letter to local news agencies as well as Galen Rose's attorney. This letter, it's called on Reddit, the whistleblower letter. (laughs) And I do want to read the whistleblower letter. So I'm going to, um, I will abridge some of it just for the sake of time but know that i'm not cutting anything that is like uh, important meaningful content i'm just going to kind of trim the fat a little bit here as i go okay i have some information i would like to share with you regarding the deadly house fire on november 21 2016 news agencies reported carroll county sheriff's officer drew yoder and flora police officer dosh dissinger was first to arrive on the scene of a working residential house fire the officers attempted to make entry into the burning structure to rescue the occupants inside. The rescue attempt was unsuccessful due to the heavy smoke involved and resulted in both officers requiring medical assistance for the injuries they sustained. 
Later, Officer Drew Yoder was recognized for his heroic efforts and his attempts to save the four girls, and Josh Dissinger cited as a hero rescuing Officer Yoder. What has not been reported? The Flora Fire Department already had a fire engine and firefighters on scene. Officer Yoder, on his own accord, disregarding fire department orders to stay out of the way, grabbed an SCBA off the floor of fire truck and placed onto his body before he entered the burning structure. Yoder did not have any other fire department issued PPE on at that time, nor is he a member of the Flora Fire Department. Officer Yoder is a member of another fire department in Carroll County. Officer Yoder knows, as a trained firefighter, he should not have entered the burning structure without the proper gear and by himself. Sometime during Officer Yoder's rescue attempt, his face mask came off and he was overcome by smoke inhalation. Dissinger ran inside to assist Yoder's retreat, disregarding firefighters' request to stay out. A seasoned Flora firefighter was on scene with all PPE attire, assisted both Yoder and Dissinger to safety. The actions of these two officers compromised and delayed rescue efforts by firefighters to the four girls. EMS on scene focused all their effort and time to evaluate and treat both law enforcement officers, delaying treatment to the other victims. Mm. Firefighters eventually made rescue attempts after clearing the instruction of both officers to the four girls, bringing each one outside. EMS on scene could not revive them after focusing their treatment first on both officers. All four girls' bodies were removed from the scene and transported to the Florida Fire Department garage floor. This was conducted before the Carroll County coroner could arrive on the scene. Their removal and transportation of bodies before a coroner initially conducts his investigation is a violation of Indiana Code. Fire personnel are trained to make a temporary morgue setting, minimizing the views of the body from the public. Mm-hmm. Why do they choose to ignore their own training or follow proper procedures? Their bodies then being placed on a concrete floor of the fire station compromised any forensic evidence that might have been present. A first fire investigation occurred immediately after extinguishment, salvage, and initial overhaul preparations were completed. Fire investigators from responding mutual aid departments assisted Florida Fire Department investigators. Their initial investigation determined one origin of fire starting behind the refrigerator, commenting that the refrigerator was a possible cause. The firefighters who initially investigated this fire were from multiple fire departments located in Carroll County and were trained investigators from a formal Carroll County Fire Investigation Task Force. Law enforcement reported later an accelerant was detected on Officer Yoder's clothing that was retrieved from the hospital. The accelerant detected could be from cross-contamination from the SCBA that he was wearing. The face shield, mask, and air fittings get cleaned and sanitized after every use. The bottles, straps, webbing, and cushions very seldom get cleaned from fire to fire. Cross-contamination could potentially exist between clothing and equipment. Investigation of house fire continues days and weeks later. During this time, the house was never properly secured from day one. Certain civilians were seen coming and going from inside of the residence. Josh Ayers was one of them. Side note, Josh Ayers is the owner of this house. Josh Ayers, former president of the Florida Town Board. Josh Ayers, owner of Maytag Appliances Sales Distributor in Carroll County. Josh Ayers, owner of the Flora and Delphi True Value Hardware Stores. Josh Ayers provides many used appliances he received from customers throwing out their old appliances from his Maytag business to his rental properties. Josh Ayers sold a used refrigerator to the Flora Fire Department that quit working shortly afterwards and was then replaced with a new one from a different vendor because he would not make right by it. Josh Ayers, Flora Town Board President, approved an invoice in the amount of $2,275 for legal representation for Fire Chief Adam Randall during law enforcement interviews from October 16th through October 19th. Adam Randall, son of Dennis Randall, former Indiana State Fire Investigator. Adam was truly affected by this fire. 
At one time, he changed his name on Facebook to a Muslim name and tattooed his entire back with images stemming from this fire. Jesus. I know he is withholding information about this fire, and he is slowly spiraling downhill because of it. The guilt he is experiencing is eating him up inside. Why would the fire chief need legal representation? I would think the police and fire departments share the same goal, justice for those four girls. Why are my tax dollars being spent for this? Not one town board representative will answer this question. Current fire chief Todd Trent is also withholding information. Being so close with both Adam and Dennis Randall, he chooses his words very carefully not to reveal the truth. Officer Todd Trent assisted each firefighter who gave a written statement about this fire on what to write and what not to report. Feels like the town has a dark secret and no one wants the truth revealed. A peer review is conducted by the Indianapolis Fire Department. What they don't know is that they received revised documents instead of originals for their investigation. I reside here in this small community and must remain anonymous. Hmm. Now, I put that letter in the context of my theories kind of of um, kind of corruption and an intentional fire set by Josh Ayers and Troy Helderman or henchmen thereof and an accidental fire with a shitty shoddy investigation because I think you could look at that letter and see kind of um, echoes of either scenario. What do you think? It feels like whoever wrote it, I don't think that they have a like a full-fledged theory about this is what happened and I need somebody to say mm-hmm. it. But very yeah. much of like, hey, these connections aren't clear, but something shady is going on. Like, these are the people that you need to talk to. I don't feel right about this. And the people involved don't clearly don't feel right about it. Mm-hmm. Like, I do think. Oh, go no, ahead. go ahead. Well, I think one takeaway I have from the letter also is that this person um, very much writes like they know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, like, when it came to kind of, like, the tone of the letter or its content or how it was written or how any of the information was presented, I didn't find myself doubting the letter, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I want to kind of for, – for me, that skepticism is not really – I don't have any for this letter, yeah. truly. Yeah. I don't have a ton of skepticism for the letter, but I think that he is saying confidently this wasn't done properly and these girls deserve mm-hmm. something more. Yeah, you know, I I think best case scenario this was a shitty landlord that did not take care of this apartment and these girls were the victims of that. That's the mm-hmm. best case scenario for what happened. I don't think this was a freak accident. I think that with proper landlording, this could have been avoided. Mhm. I definitely um I think a lot of what this also just made me think and feel was that um, it's okay for these like small town agencies to not be particularly experienced or well versed in things until stuff like this happens. And then that lack of experience and lack of knowledge is the difference between justice and injustice Mm -hmm. and answers and obfuscation. So like, you know, you can hope and pray all day long that your little town never has anything like this happen. But at this point, we're looking at a county where within a couple of months of each other, there have been two horrific cases, mm-hmm. loss of life for six children, and most generously, inadequate law enforcement activities, you know, in both cases that I think have cost both cases 
quite dearly. The way that the letter describes the fire department response, um, was it, I forget, I'm awful with names. I have fucking name blindness, I swear to God. Um, But the way that it describes the way that the fire fighters responding is utterly incompetent. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very well could have destroyed the ability to solve this case. Yes. Yes. And again, that's one of those things where, like, I know small towns don't always have a lot of infrastructure. Fire departments are very often volunteer fire departments. And I think those people that are in those volunteer fire departments, I'm not sure if Flores is or not, but I'm going to assume it is. Mm-hmm. You know, they they do get training. They do, you know, have a degree of experience, but they are, you know, call they have a day job. They are called from their homes to respond to a fire when one occurs. Mm-hmm. They're not the kind of traditional, like, bigger town fire departments that you see where, you know, people are on shift for, like, a few days in a row or whatever. And they're, like, stationed at a firehouse. That's not necessarily how these things work in a small town. So sometimes they are, but not always. And I just, again, like, you know, you can hope through the course of your career that nothing ever happens that tests you. But... When it did, they failed the test, right? It is volunteer fire department, 25 firefighters on call 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And that's just how they usually are in small towns out of necessity. Mm-hmm. I mean, every small town in this area is volunteer fire departments because we don't have the kind of infrastructure to support like a full-time fire department staff, yeah. right? But we can get, you know, 20 old guys to volunteer to be on the fire department, right? Which is fine until there's a case like this, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it's all fine and good, like getting cats out of trees or whatever until something like this happens. And then you need people that know what they're doing. Yeah, putting out a stove fire or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or when like our girl caught on fire when you and me were (laughs) barbecuing that one time. Oh my god, I still remember that. It was hilarious. (laughs) That was fun. I was so embarrassed. And we just left. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. like um can we i mean you're fighting this fire do you need me to stand here right now should we do you need us can we go inside we're humiliated <laughs> right now you know yeah i'm like i need to go lick my wounds a little bit <laughs> um but yeah i just i found the letter to be very troubling yeah in a lot of ways um mostly because it just points to complete like ineffectiveness on the scene and like you know you do have to account for adrenaline and we got to get this done and we don't see a lot of this so I'm just like doing what I think is right you know Um, that's my frustration is that with proper training you don't have to account for that adrenaline because you have been properly mm -hmm. trained to respond sure there's a rush sure there is you know an experience and an emotional response, but when you're properly trained, you know how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is one of those cases where it's really important to say that you can have a high degree of integrity and still be incompetent. Yes. Yes. Right? Like, I don't think that anybody, any of these, you know, firefighters, I, I doubt that they did anything intentionally awful. Mm-hmm. Right? But their incompetence has led to issues in this case mm-hmm. you know conceivably if, if if the letter is true and i think the letter sounds like somebody that's probably pretty close to it yeah. honestly just because you had good intentions doesn't mean there aren't consequences exactly mm-hmm. so theory three is about very very bad intentions okay so now we're moving from incompetence to malfeasance 
Mm-hmm. Theory three is that this was a racially motivated crime. Flora has a population of about 2,036 people, according to the 2010 census. The 20 census data is not available. Um, 0.3% of the population at that time reported their race as black or African-American. 2020 estimates are closer to a population of 1,800 and an African-American population of around 3%, so a little bit bigger. But looking at either set of data, this is a very, very small minority in town. That's not necessarily what makes me think it's racially motivated, but that's certainly the racial context of Flora. Mm -hmm. What does make me think that this is a possibility is that this region of the state has an extremely high concentration of white supremacist clubs and affiliates. Oh, great. Yes. So kind of quick crash course into Indiana clan history. I will be doing a full episode on this very soon. Um, Yeah, I just need to get out of Indiana first because I've been here for so long. But when I come back to Indiana, we're talking about the Indiana clan. Yeah, y'all, she's aware so, of it that she can't get out of the state. I know. I'm so stuck here. Indiana, unfortunately, has a long and sickeningly rich history with the KKK. At one point in kind of like the peak of the KKK, some of the leaders within the like overall organization looked at Indiana as kind of an exemplar of KKK membership and loyalty and activities. That's not something you want in your CV as a state. Hell no. At its peak in 1920, 30% of Indiana males were registered members of the Indiana clan. Wow. 30% of men were registered members of the Indiana clan. Well, women weren't allowed to be, so. Right. This was about 250,000 people. I'm upset. Yeah, you're going to get more upset. Central Indiana, including Carroll County, had the highest concentration of membership. To my mind, this haunting legacy of racial hate has a lasting imprint on the area. Despite being well in the Midwest, Confederate flags in central Indiana are about as common as American ones, just observationally. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. Of the hate crimes that have been cataloged in Indiana, a full 85% of them are race-based. Kokomo, Indiana, is seen as the hub of hate group activity in central Indiana. It actually includes about two of the seven currently active branches of the KKK in the state. The rest are in Ohio. So there are s- <laughs> no, the seven active branches in Indiana alone. Oh, okay. Two of them are in Kokomo? Two of them are in Kokomo. Wow. Which means two of them are within a half an hour of Flora. Because that's where Kokomo is. Okay. That data comes from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which reported in 2016 that there were as many as 32 hate groups operational in the state. Okay. And out of those 32, like some have a specific headquarters, some are statewide. So, you know, there are the two branches of the KKK in Kokomo itself. And then there are a slew of other organizations that operate statewide. From what I just know, kind of like locally, from what people tell me, if you are looking to be a piece of shit racist, <laughs> you want to go to Kokomo. Great. That's where you're going. Kokomo, like I said, is about a half an hour of a drive from Flora, an easy drive, pretty much a straight line. Mm-hmm. And so my guess is that people from Carroll County that have that sort of hate in their hearts are probably pulled to Kokomo to participate in those chapters of those organizations. For their meetings. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kokomo is also where you would go if you needed a Walmart or a Starbucks. It's just like the local. Oh wow! So town it even is just that, like 
just where you go, where you have to go. Yeah, it's where you go. It's where you have to go. If you want to go to McDonald's, you got to go to Kokomo, right? Like, it's just where you got to go in Carroll County. And that Kokomo is not in Carroll County. It's in the neighboring county, but it's very, very close. Mm-hmm. This theory is what Galen Rose herself has suspected, at least at one point, that she stated publicly. Being one of the very, very few black families in Florida would make them an unfortunately natural target for a hate group. And we all know the KKK likes to set fires. So was this an act of some kind of contemporary lynching, is my question, or some kind of race-based threat that went out of control? This kind of racism runs so deep and ubiquitously in this area that actually at at one point, Galen had accidentally inadvertently dated somebody that she later found out had a swastika tattoo. Like, this is, I cannot overemphasize how dyed in the wool this shit is in this area. I really cannot. Yeah. So I'm not saying that to suspect this guy. I don't. Mm -hmm. Their relationship was short, unremarkable, not that interesting. And from what Galen said, treated the, the, he treated them pretty well. But it's just an example of how common that stuff is here. Yeah, and how, like, just not even thought of it is. Because it just mm-hmm. blends into the, like, unfortunately, that level of white supremacy just blends into the ra- background. Yeah, yeah. Did they mention anything about, or did Galen mention anything about any threats, comments, anything like that that had been thrown their way recently? No. Okay. So... When I talk about this theory, it's it's purely speculative. Yeah. Okay. Wow, I'm slurring. Speculative. This is speculative. Um, I'm not drunk. I'm just tired. You definitely <laughs> said So I heard you laugh, and I was like, did I say something stupid? I cannot overemphasize. Oh, go. my God. God, you're talking oh. like me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, should I go back and do it again or should we just let it just ride? Just let it ride. Just let it ride. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, fine. So, you know, I say that to say that um, there's a very real possibility in my mind that the Venn diagram of prominent families in Carroll County and historical KKK membership is probably damn near a circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I looked at a lot of research from Tougaloo University out of Mississippi. Uh, A lot of their social justice work centers around cataloging historical sundown towns Mm -hmm. nationally and towns with notably racist histories across the country. Um, On their list, Flora is listed as a probable sundown town Mm -hmm. along with Delphi. Nearby Monticello, which is how they say it, is listed as surely a sundown town. So these are obviously, like, not hard and fast categorizations, but not every town in the state is on the list. So to be on the list at all, there has to be some kind of evidentiary value to make that statement. Do you want to explain really quick for some of our listeners who might not know, like, what a sundown town Mm. is? Sure. So a sundown town would be, so, you know, kind of post-emancipation proclamation, like Jim Crow era and beyond, uh, sundown towns were places that either via some kind of ordinance official or unofficial anyone in town after sundown that was black or a person of color could be would be shot on site basically yeah like you yeah. were you were allowed to live in the town but you had to be back in your home by sundown mm-hmm. you could not be seen in public yeah yeah so um i looked through this website and i found one um example that i thought was just 
kind of chilling so people could kind of like submit stories of of each of these areas and towns and I looked at kind of I looked at a bunch of the towns around um, the area just to kind of get a sense of you know probable versus surely versus not you know places that had like some history that was notable or recorded Mm -hmm. and there was a story out of Monticello which is very nearby that states an Indiana resident who used to travel to Lake Schaefer for the summer stated, I vividly recall a faded billboard on the south side of Highway 24 en route to the lake that declared, this is a sundown town. I asked my friend's dad about the sign, and he informed me that, well, we're in White County, Indiana, home of the KKK. Mm-hmm. So this is what we're talking about here. Now, again, I realize this is speculative, but when you talk about things being passed on generationally, generationally, oh my God. When you talk about things being passed down generationally, 100 years is really not a very long time. So like the height of the KKK in Indiana is 1922 to 23. If you are my age, then conceivably, your great grandfather could have been an enrolled member of the KKK, Mm -hmm. who then brought your grandfather up with it, then his kids, then you. That's not that much removal. That's it. Right? Mm hmm. That is not the kind of removal that any of us would like to think is 100 years, but that's all. Nope. Right? So do I have enough faith in Indiana to say, yeah, no way? Absolutely not. Right? Um, And that was the height of, like, when people would admit to being in the KKK. Exactly. Since the 60s and the 70s, people would still be in the the KKK, but the – it's not – it wasn't as public. And there are towns in Indiana where in the last, like, 15 years or so, um, you will periodically see news stories about people finding KKK pamphlets on their lawns, things like that. So these are very real things that happen in these localities also now, right? It was just a few years ago that I went back home and my sister was like, hey, the KKK rally's in town. You want to avoid this street. Wow. So again, like I, I, it's all speculative, but when I kind of, to, just to put a thesis statement on it, we have here an intentional fire set to one of the very few black families in a very small town, a half an hour away from the racist hub of central Indiana. Mm-hmm. Just put it out there. It's hard to ignore. Again, it's not that we have specific evidence to it, but when you talk about trends and things like that, it, you have to keep it on the shelf. Yeah. I also think, like, whether or not that is a cause for the fire, could it be a cause for the lack of interest? And I think that that is more likely. Mm -hmm. Is, you know, is that what's causing the lack of interest in investigation, the shoddy investigation, even if it's not conscious? Again, like, Mm -hmm. unconscious biases impact behaviors. Mm Mm-hmm and impact investigations and justice. Yeah. So theory three is uh, it's a pretty short theory, but I'll, I'll just put it out there. So in 2019, the owner of the Pizza King restaurant in Flora, Mark Joe Sandifer, 36, was charged and arrested with child molestation and possession of child sex abuse material. The Pizza King restaurant is about a block from the Rose home, and it is reported kind of anecdotally that Sandifer did know at least one of the girls, probably just from around town, Mm -hmm. and most notably the oldest girl, Kiara. Mm -hmm. So 
that is a theory that you'll see out there. There's nothing that links this guy to uh, previous fires or anything like that, but there was a known, um, you know, bad guy with crimes against children under his belt operating within a couple of blocks of the home. Mm-hmm. So theory four is just that he, for whatever reason, set the house on fire. He's a bad guy doing bad guy stuff. Bad guy doing bad guy stuff, yes. There's no evidence of any, like, particular relationship between him and Kiara other than, like, you know, she would go pick up the pizzas and he's the guy at the pizza shop. But again, bad guy doing bad guy stuff. There is a notable bad guy very, very close to the home. You had mentioned before that there was a person of interest. Is there any information about who that person of interest was? Mm-mm. No. Okay. But... The information about the person of interest was released at about the same time as the investigation against Sandifer. So if that's your guess, I think it's not an unreasonable one. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else that links him to the case, though. So, like, if theory four is the one that ends up being true, I'll be surprised. That's I think that's one that would most surprise me, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's okay, but I need way more. I need way more for any Mm. of these theories, but... I know, I'm sorry. And then, so I'll get to theory five. Theory five is just that there's a random arsonist at work in the Carroll County area. Mm -hmm. Rural areas actually tend to have a shockingly high incidence of fires, both intentional and unintentional. It's just kind of a byproduct of life out here. (laughs) Um, You get barn fires that go out of control. You get burn piles that go out of control. You have old ass houses Mm -hmm. that are not updated necessarily as quickly as they are sometimes in urban environments. Per capita, fires are actually more common in rural areas than they are in urban areas yeah um, for a whole host of these reasons right so carroll county has had a few fires um like i said the barn fire that the heirs was involved in the heirs brothers were involved in um that property that was owned by josh and troy holderman there was a barn fire a huge barn fire uh, in Flora just a few months ago. There was another fatal fire that of unknown cause in 2009 that killed a mother and her two sons. Her husband made it out of the home, um, but it was a devastating fire. And there were a whole host of other fires. Mm-hmm. Fires are definitely happening out there in what I think is um, a shockingly high rate even for an, uh, a rural county. Yeah. To put some numbers to that, In 2022, there were 71 total fatalities in Indiana related to fires. Of those, 44 were listed as undetermined in cause, and 45 of them occurred in rural counties. And I crunched those numbers myself looking at a map (laughs) of um, from like the Indiana Department of Homeland Security's like fire map. And so when I say 45 occurred in rural counties, I'm saying that 45 occurred in counties that do not have a city larger than 5,000 people. There were other fires that could have occurred in rural areas of other counties, Mm -hmm. but I did not count those in those numbers. Um, So just like purely rural counties, we're talking 45 out of the 71 that caused fatalities just last year. It's notable, I think. Yeah, I mean, you have much more space for a fire. You have older buildings. You have, Mm -hmm. in a lot of rural places, people will burn a lot of things rather than, like, taking them to a dump or something like that. Exactly, yeah. It happens. Stuff gets out of control. More people are more likely to let, you know, an old stove go kind of sitting Mm -hmm. because it's harder to get a repair guy out there or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, rural poverty is also Mm -hmm. um, very prohibitive to making updates to these older homes as well, right? Now, of all violent crimes, arson is one of the easiest ones to get away with. Yeah. Annually in the U.S., only 21% of them are ever cleared. Mm -hmm. That's disturbing. That's upsetting. Isn't it? Yeah, it's very disturbing. So almost a full 80% of arsons will never be solved. You know, I put all of these kind of theories out there just to say, like, could it all be a coincidence? Maybe. One person's desire to do something reckless? Maybe. One person's desire to do something evil? Maybe. Was this family an intentional or unintentional victim? Don't know. Yeah. Right. But I put that all out there. I'm not sure what's going to stick with people. I'm not sure what's going to stick with you. I have what I think sticks to me, (laughs) Um, but, you know, there's not a lot of information, so it's really hard to say, like, it's sticking for this reason, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think? You give me your thoughts before I conclude. So I was just, you know, I Google as we talk, as I know you do, too, Um, because I saw, like, a photo of, like, a suspect in an arson in uh, Flora. And it's yes. a completely unrelated arson mm-hmm. that happened. It looks like just a year, year and a half after this one. Yes. Um, and I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, there are a lot of arsons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think thinking about like without much evidence of anything to go on, I feel like best case scenario, this was a case of tragic neglect on the part of the Mm -hmm. landlord i feel like that's the most likely Mm -hmm. and then i do feel like a lot of this other scrambling just feels like cover up yeah like they're covering for oh they don't want their buddy to get in trouble well he didn't mean anything so let's not investigate let's just let this one slide it'll disappear blah 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 meanwhile an entire family was just destroyed destroyed yeah yeah i mean i think that's that's what really sticks in my craw too like i think either way intentional fire or unintentional fire that house was not made to withstand mm-hmm. any of it no right no. like it's old i would not be surprised if there was knob and tube in there um if not the full electrical rig then it, probably some of it the lack of smoke detectors in the home means that things can get out of control a lot faster than mm-hmm. you can get a handle on it, right? Yeah. I, yeah, and in older homes, like, also, like, where these guys are placing, like, their own, like, used appliances, like, so you know you're not necessarily getting, like, new appliances in the home, things like that. Like, it's not set up to be fire safe no. at the very least, no. It was right? not set up to be a safe home for a family, and that's mm-hmm. what he was selling it as. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the uh, – that feels to me like the most probable explanation. And in some ways, like, it's a really, really frustrating one because it's like you should be able to count on your home to be a safe space and you should be able to count on your landlords to provide a safe space for you for what you're paying for, right? Does the family have any, like, leg to stand on if they were to go after him for that? That's part of my conclusion. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that does bring me to where are we now? So where are we now is lawsuits. Oh, okay. um, so 
there have been two lawsuits filed by Galen Rose uh, in relation to this case. Um, one, the first one was that she filed a product liability lawsuit against Whirlpool for um, a faulty range in the home that potentially could have contributed to the fire. The lawsuit called the range uh, defective and dangerous. The lawsuit went on to speculate that the deaths of the girls would not have occurred without Whirlpool and or Sears. The range had been taken from the home for testing. Problem was that the defense side was able to show that the extensive testing uh, of the stove showed that it was not defective and posited further that the deaths were the result of no working smoke detectors. So that lawsuit was tossed out and nothing came of that. So more recently, she has filed a lawsuit against Birch Tree Holdings, as in um, Josh Ayers and Troy Holderman, mm-hmm. for uh, a, it's a wrongful death lawsuit, yeah. um, basically against them for being slumlords. That lawsuit is still ongoing. Okay, good. Yeah. I hope something comes out of that one, because it does sound like, again, if the landlords were not responsible for keeping legally and i i know it's le- it's in illinois i'm almost certain it has to be in indiana landlords have to have smoke and carbon monoxide detectors in their apartments and they have to be functioning that's yes. fucking tenant 101 it's basic tenants rights laws like mm-hmm. um i would think almost universally certainly it is here yeah yeah And if there's that on top of faulty wiring, on top of faulty appliances, if you have, if it was, if they did have knob and tube, are you guys required to change that? Not yet. Okay. Um, From what I understand, especially like when we almost bought a home with it, that if you were to purchase a home or to try to purchase a home, an investigate or like a, an inspection would often require the previous owners to replace the knob and tube before selling the home. But that depends very, very much on whether you're in a buyer's market or a seller's market. So like when we tried to buy that house that had full knob and tube, yeah. we could not get them to replace it. Yeah. And so then we had to price out replacing it. And that was, it was, gosh, I think the estimate was like 30 to 40K basically to rewire this entire house. Yikes. away from the knob and tube so it is extremely cost prohibitive to do it for most people so for any of yeah, our listeners so that have no idea what we're talking about knob and tube is a really old style of wiring that like we stopped using in about the 40s mm-hmm. um it's beautiful to look at yeah, it's beautiful to look at, but we stopped using it because it's not well insulated. If there's ever any overheating or a spark or anything like that, it goes right up in flame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, yeah. like, it's not illegal to have it, but it's pretty much impossible to sell a house with it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no houses, I think, after the 50s were built with knob and tube. Right, yeah. And I mean, I thought it was really cute, but then I learned what it was. And I was like, that's terrifying. Can you knock 40K off this house price? And they were like, no. And you're like, well, then you can replace it or goodbye. Yeah. And then I found out uh, two months later when I started my new job that the person who refused to sell us the house uh, would then work for me. (laughs) So that was funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yikes. 
That was really awkward. I was like, why is your name so familiar? Oh, it's because your signature was on like several forms fucking rejecting my offer for my dream home. <laughs> well. Yeah. Oh, I wanted that house so bad. Anyway. Well, I'm glad you have a house that's not going to catch fire. Me too. Me too. Fully updated. Fully updated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the lawsuits is where this case is sitting legally right now. So these civil suits has been kind of where Galen Rose has had to take it. As far as kind of what's going on in the kind of public sphere, in the summer of 2022, the Flora Four Angels, which is an internet group devoted to raising awareness for this case, you'll find them active on Facebook and also um, very active on the uh, Flora Four subreddit, which is an amazing source for information of this case. They raised $20,000 with the intention of that money being used as reward money for information leading to an arrest in this case. When the money was handed over, the Flora Fire Department ended up allocating the funds to their own interests. What? Mm-hmm. They spent it on updates and other stuff, but they spent it. That's so fucked. Yes. I am sure that they would tell you that it was not clear where the donation was supposed to go, but I think it was probably clear. And even if it wasn't, I think it communicates something much sadder. Mm-hmm. It communicates that it... it at the best case scenario is that it didn't even occur to them to use it for reward money, which I think says that they don't think it's going to be necessary or needed. It's a slap in the face to this family. It really is. I, yes, it is. That made my blood boil. And the worst case scenario is that they said, fuck it, and just spent the money how they wanted to. I right? hate them. Yeah. Either way, it's not good. The house in Florida still stands. It is boarded up. The girls' toys are still sitting on the front porch. There are irises that still bloom on the lawn, but it is obviously unoccupied and boarded up. I don't know if it's still standing for financial reasons or if it's still standing for investigative reasons, Mm -hmm. but it is still standing and it feels to me like kind of a ghost that looms over what should be kind of an insignificant and safe place for a family to call home. You know, it feels like it's kind of just looming over that street i mean at the end of the day oh go ahead and say if it's still standing for investigative reasons it doesn't feel like they're investigating anything yeah yeah i agree i think it's probably for money reasons i don't know precisely what those money reasons would be Mm -hmm. if it is less expensive to pay it's probably less expensive to to pay some scant property taxes on a home in a place like that than it is to pay for a demolition and cleanup job of a home. There's also like code issues there as well. But the fact that it's still standing, I think, is um, sad. And um, at the very least, sad. At the very most, it's problematic. Yeah. Um, some have said that they would love to see the house bulldozed and a memorial set up. Or maybe a small park set up in honor of the girls. And if it is still up for investigative purposes, I hope, hope, hope that it's being used as such, right? Or that there are plans to use it as such. The good thing about Narsen is that there will still be some evidence somewhere in that home. Even, you know, we're looking at like, um, geez, seven years later, it's, it's way too long, but... Um, there would still be something there. So you have that hope. I mean, I think at the end of the day, 
you know, obviously it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Kiana Davis, Kiara Phillips, Carrie L. McDonald, and Keani Welch deserve justice. Mm-hmm. Galen does not speak out that often. On the fifth anniversary of the fire, she released a very simple statement, and it said, Justice for the girls I think about every day. And I really hope that Galen gets to see justice for her girls in the near future. Yeah. Because there were four beautiful little lives that ended really senselessly mm-hmm. as a result of either incompetence or malfeasance. But either way, they deserve answers, they deserve justice, and they deserve for this to be put to rest. Definitely, 100%. Yeah, I hope at some point there is some information. I something is released. They have some kind of evidence that can just give some level of answers. You know. Mm-hmm. Me too. It feels, Me too. It feels like the politics behind this may not allow it, but yeah, we can hope. Though I mean, I think it's not it's not insignificant to look at the players involved here. Yeah. Um. And to think about how those pieces interconnect and intersect and even small acts of what might be seen as like harmless, like I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine Mm -hmm. could, you know, lead to, you know, a series of small acts like that could lead to something like this. Most definitely. Happening and then being covered up or not being investigated fully or what have you. And I mean, something as simple as like paying off a city inspector. Mm hmm. Right. Could have led or to even this. just calling in a favor. I mean, this is a really small town yeah. and a pretty prominent family within it. So, yeah. you know, anything like that. So, you know, as far as a call to action goes, what I find to be disturbing is that even just a year after the case, it was only two or three officers assigned to it from the ISP. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Carroll County has a lot going on right now, but... I think it's worth pressure. I think it's worth pressure. Mm-hmm. Again. Definitely. Four little girls who had their lives ahead of them lost their lives, and nobody did a proper investigation as to why. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And even if it felt like a proper investigation without a conclusion... I think that would still be significantly more satisfying to Galen and her family and the public than what we have now. Yeah. Yeah. Because now it sounds like all there is is rumors. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that is the Flora Four. Uh, once again, I'm left angry. Yep. And frustrated. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's just like you hear about all of this stuff, and I feel like especially the last few cases that we've covered, I'm like, this this shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Most true crime cases shouldn't have happened, but these really feel like they should at least be solved. We should at least have more information. We should at least have some feeling of justice. There shouldn't be all these questions, right? Yeah. That's the thing is like it just it shouldn't feel like it's just you're staring into this abyss with just a giant question mark staring back at you when you look into these cases, yeah, exactly. you know, and maybe I should start choosing things that are solved. But <laughs> lately, I just feel like it's kind of been important to call out problems where you see them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I don't know. 
I think that's where both of our heads have been lately is more Mm -hmm. rather than just telling the story of a case wanting to I don't know do something where we can encourage some kind of justice or some kind of change yeah it's really be kind of contributing to the conversation in a meaningful way right yeah yeah so tell us about next week oh we're gonna have a conversation next week yay uh so next week we are going to dive into a topic i have been wanting to cover for a long time it's a big topic and finding a case to include within it has been rough but i'm gonna do my best so next week we are traveling to iowa and specifically to midwest academy a part of the troubled teen industry Mm to talk about a a specific case within Midwest Academy, but also just to talk in general about the culture and the world of the troubled teen industry, something that I've been fascinated by since I was young and watching those fucking boot camp episodes of Maury. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. And talk about things that crystallize in your consciousness. God, and even then, like, thinking about, like, remember watching them, I still remember being like, how the hell does this help anyone? Yes. And then I got a doctorate in psychology, and I still have the same fucking question. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I feel like our show has, like, two subscripts. One is Indiana is racist. <laughs> two is what the hell? <laughs> Sometimes they're both. True. Yeah, you can't really have the first one without the second one, right? You can have the second one without the first, but you can't have the first one without the second. And I think there's a third subplot of what the fuck is happening in Ohio? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, just what what is going on in the Midwest? Oh, man. Uh, people think they're just a bunch of flyover states. No, this shit's no. fucked. What you're flying over is fucked up, guys. And, you know, I really thought when we started this show, like, do we have, like, multiple years of material by which to do this show? I often (laughs) think I'm like, oh, you know, we're going to run out of, like, good cases to cover. We're not. We're not. We're not. We're here for the duration. And I think it's funny because I think the longer that we have been here, the more time we spend on smaller and smaller cases – and the mm-hmm. less interest I have in kind of the biggies. Yeah, yeah. I think I've, my my interest in like traditional true crime has fallen away, I think, over the course of doing this show. Yeah. 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 I mm-hmm. I don't know. You guys have you've probably seen it just having more of an interest in like historical and political. Systemic. Systemic issues within crime. Mm-hmm. and also just tearing apart my profession in general <laughs> true yeah <laughs> i mean all this thing provides backdrop and i think that's a lot of what the conversation has been missing in general is just like what is the context that mm-hmm. uh, like allows and enables these things to happen yeah yeah and i feel like that the context is is everything yeah right? and i really we're going to talk a lot about the context that drives the troubled teen industry like mm. the cultural context and kind of how how if there is any way to fucking stop it 
This is going to be really interesting. I'm excited for this. Yay. We need to come in fresh because I I haven't even written it yet and I'm sure it's going to be long. Oh, boy. Okay. So we should probably sign off so you can go to bed, get some rest and do this tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, me too. All right, friends. Well, um, until that wonderful day comes, um, please hang out with us on the socials. More importantly, please do share information about this case, other cases um, with other people, because in many ways, like these things staying in the public eye is what keeps them in the consciousness of the populace and by extension, law enforcement and media. So please do like it's not about us it's about sharing information about these cases with the hope that awareness helps to bring answers yeah raise your voice start a fuss go yell at somebody about unsolved cases and unacknowledged things amen all right my friend shall we sign off yes goodbye friends we love you go yell goodbye at peeps be nice but <laughs> yell at people also <laughs> and then go home and treat yourself to some cheese truth and we love you love you for doing that you hellraisers you yeah yeah okay bye bye I guess there, there's two kind of people in the world, right? <laughs> there's the me's and there's the you's. I don't fear death. <laughs> it's problematic. I do. <laughs> I do.